created live on Fireside. The following program was recorded live on Fireside Chat. If you'd like to participate in these chats, join us every Thursday at noon Eastern Time at firesidechat.com slash scottmonty. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? John Adams said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of the fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense. The habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore the principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty. If you aren't yet subscribed to the Timeless and Timely newsletter, where I write regularly about these topics, you can find it at scottmonty.com. And please, if you are listening to us on a podcast distribution app, give us a rating or review. It helps other people find the show. This week, we're talking about authenticity. You know, as we've lived out the last year or more in drastically different circumstances from just a year prior, companies have been expressing their values more prominently and succinctly. And as much as marketers in the previous few years touted purpose-driven brands, now we see critics belittling some of these efforts, calling such companies woke. Now, if recognizing inequality and making decisions based on what's good for society, based on values, if that's a weakness, I'm not sure what these critics considered to be a strength. And such is the double-edged sword of authenticity. On the one hand, you can go through life trying to conform to what others expect of you or to live up to your ideals. On the other hand, when you willingly show others who you are, you open yourself up to critiques, and it takes strength to be vulnerable while being your authentic self. And when what you'll find at the intersection of authenticity and vulnerability is the holy grail for any leader. Trust. Minter Dial is a professional speaker, storyteller, author, and consultant, and he specializes in leadership, branding, and transformation. He's given over 500 talks and seminars to audiences in five continents. He's the author of three award-winning books, including The Last Ring Home, a POW's lasting legacy of courage, love, and honor in World War II. 
a book he turned into an award-winning documentary film shown across the United States, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Minter's other books include Future Proof, How to Get Your Business Ready for the Next Disruption, which he co-wrote with Caleb Storkey, and Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence, which won the Book Excellence Award in 2019. Previously, he enjoyed a 16-year international career at L'Oreal. He worked in the DLJ Investment Bank, the Philadelphia Zoo, the New Jersey State Aquarium, and he founded three startups, including a travel agency for entertainers and a high-end handmade leather Gladstone bag maker. He's here with us today to discuss the topic of his latest book, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. Minter, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Scott, what a lovely introduction. Well, thank you. I had to get the Parisian music in there just for you. <laughs> Je ne sais quoi. <laughs> I am completely an idiot when it comes to French, but uh, I at least know my good accordion Parisian cafe music. You are surely a bon vivant, Scott. <laughs> Or a flaneur, who knows? Well, <gasps> um, Minter, you know, one part of your, well, a number of uh, parts of your bio stood out to me, but I, I'm interested in this leather Gladstone bag maker. I think the world needs more Gladstone bags, but talk to me a little bit about that before we dive in here. Well, so that was just this wacky experience I had. I, I mean, the, the story is long, but I, I ended up meeting this chap who had a beard, is about 10 years older than me, and essentially, he, he, he had spent two years in the hospital being remade. If you can recall the $6 million man, he was actually a 2 million pound man. Wow. And had been reconfigured in an, after an accident that killed two of the four passengers. And, um, and I said, oh, wow, this is an interesting man. We had lots of friends in common. And then he tells me, oh, well, I speak 10 languages. I'm like, oh, crap. Uh, you know, as does me, you know, eclipses me. So we started speaking in all of our shared languages. And he said, well, I speak Farsi too. I'm like, oh my God, I had an Iranian friend exchange. We ended up playing a lot of rugby together. But he said, you know what? None of this interests me. You know, the thing that really interests me is is spending time working on leather and uh, my garden. And I said, well, he told me more. He said, well, I have a castle. And uh, I used to work with the saddle maker and he taught me everything he knew about uh, leather. So anyway, that journey led me to thinking of how we could do things with on, on leather goods. And I was also thinking about this idea of making bespoke bags. I was so bored working at DLJ at the time, the investment bank, the sort of constant red tie, white shirt, blue, blue suit type of approach, which you had to do. That was the costume. How do, you, how do you break the mold? Well, so instead of having a, a regular briefcase, it looked regular on the outside somehow. But then we in the inside, it was totally you. So our Gladstone bags, let's say good for doctors, and we need more of that, I suppose, was um, on the outside, very demure, beautiful leathers, buffalo hide and, and all sorts of other different things. But inside, explosive you. And we chose different materials from Ghana, from uh, South Africa, lots of uh, Nigerian mud cloth and, and the kinti cloth and all this to, to give you an options to make the inside be all about you. Uh, and that lasted two years before I went belly up. <laughs> oh, 
That's too bad. But what a wonderful tie into authenticity. I had no idea. Um, you know, when when you talk about bespoke, you know, there there are some uh, tailors who, you know, will make you a suit that on the outside looks ostensibly like pretty much every other suit. And they'll fit it to you so it, you know, accentuates your uh, particular physique, brings out your best features. But if you open it up, you'll see the lining, perhaps, is whatever you want it to be, stripes or paisley or a garish red color or whatever. And it's it's a way to still express yourself without being completely disruptive to the world around you. Exactly. It's like the difference between buying counterfeit and real luxury goods. You can go to Hong Kong and get in, in, in within one kilometer one another. I still think this happens in Hong Kong. Um, you can within one kilometer you can find the same bag for twenty five dollars or twenty five thousand dollars, or you know roughly those type of I mean counterfeit on one hand, and and the fact is that you, the only reason you might want to buy the real one is you know it's real. Right, right. Well, um, you you wrote this book. You lead how being yourself makes you a better leader, and and it really comes down to this core of of authenticity that we're focusing on in this episode of Timeless Leadership. So uh, tell me a little bit about how you came to realize that authenticity was something that was not only worth writing about, but is key to leadership. So there comes with a little wobble in my life because I I certainly don't believe that I was always authentic. I I definitely felt like I was running two tracks. And the way I describe it is I was running the tie track where you wear a tie, you go to work and you do the things you're supposed to do and, and you kind of follow the dreams that you've inherited, if you will, from either society, your parents, school and so on. And then I had this other track, which was the tie die track where i'd rip off my red tie you know per se and because we got home because i was working on the training floor we'd get home rather early and and let's say at six o'clock i was i was ready to go and i'd you know don my tie-dye and i'd go off and shake my bones uh, listening to the grateful dead and and a very different type of experience sweating for five six hours and then i get home in all sorts of conditions shower eventually shave, put on the red tie. And I, I felt like I was living two lives. And and I was like, oh, how can I reconcile these two things within me? And otherwise, I'm always going to be in dissonance. And as soon as you're in dissonance, well, outside of the fact that it takes extra energy, it actually can be dangerous to your health. And so that was, let's say, the, the deep tissue material that, that lent me more and more to figure out how can I reconcile both and, and move from the tie to the tie die and both have the tie and the die together in, in one, one bag. And uh, that was the work that I had to do on myself, Scott, that had to jettison some elements of inherited attributes and thoughts and, and bring on the thing which kind of makes me the unique me. Mm. But that took a long time. Well, and that's that's a fascinating realization, Mentor. And, and I love the way you, you contrast the two from tie to tie-dye. And my immediate question in thinking about that is how do you reconcile those two elements of your personality while remaining at 
so conservative a place as an investment bank? Or, or does it mean finding a new path? Well, it ultimately did mean finding a new path. But the the, the, the similarity that I wanted, I'd, I'd like to pull out, Scott, is like reconciling where you're working and who you are. Uh, and in general, the idea is to have some overlap between who you are as a person and where you're working. And, and, I, and I certainly ward away from trying to have 100% overlap. First of all, you never have 100% knowledge of who you are exactly. Second of all, let's be pragmatic. Because sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. And so the, the key then becomes the narrative about what part of me overlaps at work. And if there is very small or almost false overlap, then that is a, a true moment of saying, all right, I'm out of here. I got to go. But if you can feel that there's a sufficient overlap where I'm, you know, the values are pretty good and pretty close to who I think I am, you, you don't want to be idealistic uh, about every move. And so, but it's, the, the real work is actually figuring out who you are and then making an evaluation of where you are. And the problem, of course, Scott, is not only is it hard to know who you are, it's quite hard to have a good, full understanding of a large organization, say, like Ford Motor Company, because <laughs> you've got a you've got Ford vans and trucks. You know, my father worked there for twenty years, so uh, you've got different affiliates and 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 distributors. And what is Ford? And so, you uh, when you're an individual in an organization, it's two fairly nebulous concepts that you're trying to overlap. And so that's the Let's say the tie, that's the reconciliation you need to do. First, work on yourself. Do a solid, hopefully genuine review of where you're working and find find overlaps. And if not, then bugger off. Mm. And and that finding yourself, you know, when, when we are so busy just flitting from meeting to meeting, uh, scrolling through things endlessly mm. on our phones or our uh, our desktops, it's easy to flee from yourself or to avoid that level of introspection that you need to really find that North Star. Yeah. What kind of recommendations do you have for people that, you know, want to do this but can't seem to find the time or make it a priority? Well, so I, I'm going to try to go with a, a shock approach. Wait until you have an NDE a near-death experience, uh, and then you'll figure it out. Or get with a program before that happens. As I mentioned, I think that there's a, uh, there's a health risk when you are not overlapping because you are compensating for being this other person. You've donned a mask, and it is entropic to, to do that. So it takes away energy. So inevitably what happens over time when you're not doing it you actually start eating your own soul, your own system. Mm. And it can manifest itself in far more cataclysmic health conditions like heart attack, like diabetes or, or other issues that sort of are a manifestation of that dissonance that's, that's within you. So, yeah, so that, the first thing is really lean in on this idea of figuring out how, who you are. And it's not one of the, here's the, here's the other thing, Scott. Uh, 
is that I'm sure that everybody who's listening has a pretty good idea or think they have a pretty good idea of who they are. Yeah, my name is Minter Dial. I, I want to have a happy family. I, I'd like to have reasonable success. You know, that's defined success. And then um, I, I want to have a good legacy. I want to be a good person. But the definition or description I just gave to you kind of is everybody's. So the trick or the challenge is actually not having a vague description or definition of who you are, but a much more tight North Star that actually not necessarily unique, but certainly speaks to you in volumes where every word you choose to define your North Star makes a little vibration in your system. You you can just feel it. This is, ah. Oh, this is cool. You get that feeling of, you know, that when you know when you have that wonderful moment as, as you, all the uh, neurons are, are firing off and, and you feel that thing sh- spread throughout your brain, that lovely feeling of like, oh my gosh, that's exactly it. That aha moment, that's the work you need to get to. And until you get there, it's very hard to really understand who you are. So it takes work, sometimes tough love from friends you know, mastering words, checking them out. I mean, for me, it wasn't an overnight process, hmm. but I, I certainly had a few things that kickstarted my desire. And then once I got into the program, I'm like, oh, this is actually fun, but I had to spend time doing it. And a lot of people don't spend the time. They don't give themselves the time. They say, I don't have the time. They don't take the time because we all have only 24 hours in a day. So it's just a choice. Yeah. But you mentioned the shock of an NDE, a near-death experience. Is that anything that happened to you, or were you more of the, the slow roller? Huh. Well, I was kind of both. Um, so to say that I had an NDE specifically that started me on my journey would be inaccurate. I've actually had near-death experiences. However, those actually have only contributed to reinforce because they came later. The experience that really tilted me, sort of like just pumped me and said, oh, this is it, was living in Manhattan, uh, overlooking the Twin Towers and running a company that was called Redken, signed Fifth Avenue, New York City. So it's a professional hairdressing company mm-hmm. for those who, who don't use hair uh, products. Um, and, and running, so we're signed Fifth Avenue, New York City. Everything we do was signed with the DNA of New York City, Manhattan. And in front of me, I had the two towers and I saw the first explosion. I watched the second airplane fly right on down into the South Tower. Oh. And and that was a fairly monumental moment for me at so many levels that week. I mean, it was a big week for anybody. It was a, of, obviously, a, 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 you know, there's the, tor- the, you know the, the, the morbid death story as well. So I'm not that far, uh, all that far down. But what I did have was this realization of life is more important than selling shampoos. And, and that was sort of the wake-up call that got me not only to work on me, but to reinforce the purpose and the why of working on Redken. So I wasn't really interested in making the year-end numbers or the monthly numbers. You had to do that. But I was hoping that that would be the consequence of having a genuine purpose mm-hmm. and one that Minter felt resonated and had that overlap that I was talking about before. Wow. Well, that is certainly a memorable moment for you know anyone who was alive then i, I was actually in boston at the time uh, working in the financial district you know way up on a, a high floor of a big tower 
Hmm. Uh, and interestingly, my my, well, she this was about a month before we were married, three weeks before we were married. My wife flew from Boston to New York that morning on an American flight. Uh, fortunately, she took the flight the hour before the one that uh, hit the tower out of Boston. So, um, you know, that to me really uh, hit home as well. And as you no, say, no. It, it really makes you take stock as to well, what am I doing and why am I doing what I'm doing? Hmm. So, well, if this is my last day, this is my last hour. Right. Right. And, and, and what's the legacy I leave? Right. Exactly. So when, when, you, when you think about the values that we recognize in ourselves and we can kind of tick off what those values are that we stand for, and, and certainly these are some of the things we, we are going down on our list of episodes here on, on Timeless Leadership. Um, when, when you've got that set of values, um, how do you how do you start to make them come to life? How do you express them um, as a leader or through your work? Okay, so the first thing to say is anyone who has more than three values is has not done the proper strategic work. And I say that because you know there's nothing worse than a laundry list, and basically I'm incapable of remembering anything more than three. <laughs> But beyond that, in the interest of unicity and making yourself stand out, get there are roughly 75 values, let's say. I mean, it depends on how you want to categorize them. But then when you, when you come down to the three that are most important to you, then you need to express them in certain behaviors that manifest that value. And so I did this work with Redkin, of course, and and what we we as a group because we this is not something you dictate. You need it needs to be de facto true, and here's another point: it needs to be inside out, uh, and and therefore a level of transparency. But making those values be represented by a style of vocabulary of interaction of behaviors. And equally, if you don't have, you know, what are not signals of the value that we espouse? Because really, you know, you take the idea of integrity. You know, they're in bank, they're bankers that think they have integrity. Snar, har, har. <laughs> just, just low blow. Um, but the fact is that we all have different ideas of what all these words mean. And so it's about... And the process of doing that is actually probably as powerful as it gets to uniting people around and federating and making people feel like they are contributing and part of those values. So that, that, that was actually a process that we went through at Redkin with the individuals and we did it with the, the senior management team, which ultimately um, included 200 people. So we really enrolled the people. So it wasn't a top-down as in mentor giving the idea or Pat, my, um, my amazing uh, friend and colleague at uh, the Redkin USA, giving the direction, we would make final choices, but we enrolled everyone, embarked everybody in helping to craft what we meant, these, what these values were for us and how they 
you know, what we, we could, how we could recognize those values in how we operated. Well, I want to give people a chance to ask questions here. We're speaking with Minter Dial, author of You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. If you'd like to ask a question or participate in the conversation, just uh, request access to the microphone and we will bring you up to the stage here. Um, any and all questions are welcome. Um, Mentor, as, as we talk about bringing these uh, values to life and kind of going through the process, um, I, I, I can't help but think of uh, companies that have to make a conscious choice to take a stand on a certain issue. It may be a political issue, maybe a societal issue, but they come to a determination that um, their silence is not doing anyone any good. Um, and yet, if they speak out, they may create a lot of controversy. And let, let's take Nike as an example with their uh, sponsorship of uh, Colin Kaepernick and, and their famous statement with, with his face, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. How... How should we, either as leaders or as representatives of brands, think about taking a very public stand with some of our values and, and taking that risk? So the word courage is, let's say, super important as we look at this. And, and I would say the corollary thought is you can't possibly – want to please everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you are nobody. So the issue is also in a, a mode of trying to stand out, not to just be a copycat uh, and not to say things that you don't actually believe because that's basically called BS and, and why marketers in general have such a low trust, you mentioned word, mm. trust factor amongst consumers and executives, by the way, uh, have low trust with employees because we're constantly spouting BS that actually, A, uh, we don't believe in and, and, and shows that we are really all about the numbers as opposed to reality and humanity. So the, no, the notion of courage is important because it really means standing up for what you believe. And, and it's not a nice to have. Well, you, you need to sort through all the issues. To, to, first of all, to think that a company should not be political is to mistake what is a company. All companies and all human beings are by nature, by definition, political. There, you know, this car companies have to negotiate and lobby for all sorts of emission rules and regulations or road and regulations on the, on the, you know, how states run. And then you need to work on that. So there's constantly lobbying involved in every industry. So by nature, you have to be political. And the key point then is to, to figure out which are your priority situations and, and ideally, there's something you've been doing and feeling and believing for a considerable amount of time because then you have roots, you have 
legitimacy in your content and whatever you're trying to say. And it's probably likely that amongst your employees, it's not new news. But if you go around saying, well, what sh- I, 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 I don't know what to say, like I should say silent, like you mentioned, I think it's a pretty good sign that you don't actually know enough about who you are as an individual and or as an organization. And so there's a process and it's a messy one. But I, I fundamentally believe that if you want to be authentic and you, you want to gain, garner this trust, you're going to need to stand up and stand out. And there's a guy I'm sure you know called Ronan Dunn. I, I, I talk about him in the book. He, he's a head of wire, Verizon Wireless. And um, I, I really appreciate Ronan. Why? Because he's an Irishman. And uh, he happens to like rugby, which is obviously very useful. <laughs> but he, on his Twitter feed, he, he has an Irish flag. And of course, you could say, well, there are many Irish in America. But it's, it's, a, it's a point of view he had when he was working uh, as a head of uh, the big cable, you know, telecommunications company in Britain. He had it on there. And he wasn't afraid to say and fly his Irish flag. Wow. Which can piss off people, right? Right. So... I, I, and I, and I found that sort of candor so refreshing. Even if I'm not Irish, I, you know, I think that that's, that's the kind of thing you need to be able to do and practicing it take, it takes courage and it takes also an element of hmm, trying it out, figuring it out, see what the backlash or not is. And then you find yourself, you know, and, and the more you know yourself, the more obvious the values and the policies or subjects you want to support become. Yeah. Well, recently I saw the CEO of Delta, Delta Airlines, talking about the company's decision to speak out specifically um, in, in the context of the Georgia decision on uh, voter restriction. And, it took them a little while to come up with a statement. It took took them about a day or so. It wasn't a knee jerk reaction, so you could tell there was some some thought going into it. Um, but ultimately, when when you read the explanation or listen to the explanation that the CEO gave, it really was something that they felt that it was not only uh, something that was affecting their employees, which is absolutely one of the right reasons to stand up. Uh, for something, but they mm-hmm. saw it affecting society at large, and I thought, well, this is it's, it's refreshing to see a company standing up for what is right, and yet it was still viewed by many people, and certainly by all the detractors, as something being very controversial. When did it become controversial to stand up for what's right? Well, I think we live in a very politicized and divisive environment. So it takes courage because basically every value, every policy has has someone else on the other side of the aisle. And, And so I have a couple of thoughts with regard to the Delta thing. I mean, I think they're based in Atlanta. Is that correct? They are, yeah. Anyway, they have a hub there. So there's a legitimacy for me uh, just from the outside looking at that. On the other hand, 
fly the friendly skies. I suspect that's still their mantra. I, I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does that have to do with fly the fr- fr- friendly skies? So if they have some kind of narrative that links this policy to their history, their DNA, and, and what they believe is right, then so be it and, and fight that fight. If, on the other hand, it's like the CEO, well, I just think that this is a kind of good and, and uh, my, I think it's good for my, my, my employees, it's, it's a, a lightweight stand because there are many things that are good for your employees, really many, many good things for your employees. And where do you want to spend your resources? Because as I said with the values, it's about being strategic. And today we have, we're in a situation where if, if you don't speak about any of these policies, you know, these issues, then silence is acquiescence or, you know, considered offensive. And, and you can end up spinning wheels and shouting at everything and saying, I, I believe in this and they believe in that and I believe in this. And you end up by, by trying to espouse so many different issues not feeling uh, a impactful and two real as in you know you really believe in that you're just kowtowing you're bow down bowing down to public pressure so it's it's really a difficult path and and i i think you need to know that it's it's okay not for everybody to want or like what you do and the more you get at home with that in other words, you, you, you're able to embrace your weaknesses and you're able to understand there, there will always be detractors. You're more solid in your shoes, as we say in French, confident, knowledgeable about who I am without being a dick. Then, then you are likely to gain stronger loyalty by the people who believe with you. Yeah. And, and I suppose at that point, because, you know, the, the differing viewpoints that we're balancing, uh, some of them are simply due to people having different sets of facts or seeing things mm-hmm. in a different way. But if you, if, if you want to just avoid debating people about the facts and simply stay true to your core beliefs, your core values, and return to that and say, this is why we're doing it. And it's because we've done things this way and because we believe in, uh, you know, such a way. There's a, there's a wonderful consistency there rather than simply jumping from, you know, the, uh, the political flavor of the month and, and jumping from issue to issue. Absolutely. I mean, I love the way you, you – I mean, really it's about somehow uh, framing it and let's call it create a narrative because that's also very relevant where you have facts, but you need to relate that to who you are and what your values are. And you need, and that if you're just jumping on it now, then the chances of it feeling profound and real are unlikely. Mm. But if you've been talking about it, telling the stories, showing up and, and demonstrating those behaviors over a long time, then it becomes so much more, but obvious, mm which are the true issues that you need to be espousing and what is that link? And so again, it's about having the, the your, like, what is your slogan? What is your mission purpose or whatever, however you like to frame it. And then how are your values and how are you showing up? And then, then afterwards that helps you to sort through the chaff and come up with the real wheat. Absolutely. Well, it looks like we have uh, Sumeya joining us uh, on the microphone here. Sumeya, I hope I'm getting your name pronounced correctly 
Welcome to Timeless Leadership. Yes, hi. Um, this is my first time on uh, speaking, so I hope you can hear me well. I sure can. Go right ahead. Thanks. <laughs> um, a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for for your thoughts on on the topic. Uh, one of the the things. I think about a lot, especially within global context or um, when operating within, let's say, a community that uh, I don't know the norms of, um, tempering my authenticity um, or pulling back a little bit um, becomes important and and empathy, you know, becomes uh becomes a, a good way to balance off um, some of my tendencies, let's say authentic tendencies. And, and so uh, I ask the question of you, uh, of how you think about those kinds of situations, what are some of the ways you've uh, thought about them? Well, I, I love the question, Sumaya. Sumaya. And um, certainly I, I changed countries in my life 15 times. And along the way, I've learned a few languages and uh, had plenty of bumps in the road. And the issue at some level is, well, what is your objective and, and who are you? And somehow reconciling that with performance. So when I, I went to Canada, I, I was running a subsidiary of, of L'Oreal in Canada. And since I have a French passport and a U.S. passport and was brought up in England, I thought I was completely made up, read, ready for Canada. But little did I know, I had made some horrible generalizations and I stubbed my toe big time uh, within a, uh, really a couple of days showing my ignorance and my lack of preparation. So, um, yeah, I was trying to be genuine because I, I thought I was bringing to the table real elements, my background, my experience, and I'm not afraid to show my emotions. Um, and I'm particularly not afraid to show my emotions that I followed a, a hockey team that was not the Montreal Habitat. And, um, you know, they, they tend to like their hockey there. So I think you're right. Empathy is a great tool. Um and in the quest of performance, which is why we're there, you, you need to know you have a backbone. So uh, I think obviously when you start this small talk, let's do some chit chat and then you get into the real thing. You, like everything, you need to develop the relationships and it's hard to jump in deep end, big topics, all the sensitive issues right away before you understand the language, the codes and culture. And then hopefully, as you move into the position, you start crafting. And, and the first 100 days, most of my, or the two things that were important in my first 100 days, first was spend all my time listening, meeting people. And second of all, define by the end of the 100 days what my legacy would be for each or for this particular assignment. And then that, that was my guiding light in order to accommodate and adjust in specifically in this case for Canada, but I had many experiences in other countries too. Mentor, I, I love that, that notion of listening first before you jump into your your authentic self. It seems counterintuitive in a way that you, you would just kind of 
assuming that you you know what authenticity is and you know who you are just plow ahead but context is everything in that case mm-hmm. certainly in a new country in a new company in a new social situation i think we all tend to think we know who we are but we we need to understand who we are in the context of the others uh who, with whom we surround ourselves you know, you were mentioning, Scott, earlier about the do list and, you know, doing so many things and don't spend the time to understand who you are. It's been my observation that a lot of people who don't spend the time really working themselves like to talk. It's <laughs> almost like they want to talk themselves into who they are. And your ability to be present and not feel like you need to tell the world who you are uh, is, is a, a good way to listen. And, and when you listen, it just turns out that they'll tell you gold. They'll, I mean, once you have their confidence, because you know how to listen, you listen with integrity, you listen actively, and you don't jump in and, and, and interrupt and, and, and or, you know, layer on my filter, then you will end up crafting a path that makes so much more sense. But it does take, and I think at some level, and this was after the 9-11 experience I had in New York, that I was, I, I felt like I was more solid in my shoes. I was more prepared to listen. I didn't feel like I needed to show everybody off, even though I came into a job that I'd never done before, running four other general managers whose job I'd never done before, and in, and being an interrupter between them and the CEO. So I was, I was definitely in a difficult position, but I felt solid in what my purpose was, my mission, which is to elegantly elevate the debate and connect dots, people and ideas. And as I, I those that phrase comes off my tongue because I've been living with it now for nearly 20 years. And it, it helps when you when I'm dealing with a new situation and and horrible fighting and obviously things happen. It's not always a great day at the work, but it allowed me to stay solid and focus on what I was trying to do. Yeah. Well, if you are just joining us, we are taking questions for Minter Dial, author of You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And if you missed the first part of this conversation, you can always go back and listen to it here on Fireside Chat, or you can subscribe to it on whatever podcast player that you prefer, whatever podcast uh, distribution platform uh, you happen to use. Uh, Sumeya, thank you so much for your thoughtful question and for helping us uh, enter that uh, line of conversation. It's very helpful. So, Minter, in your book, you mention four paradoxes of being you and, and, and kind of getting the you-lead mentality there. And I thought they were fascinating, and I've, I've talked about them with uh, people in my life as well. You, you want to run us through those four paradoxes and how we ought to think about them? You know, Scott, of course, there are four, which means I can only remember three, right? I'll be here. <laughs> I, I will prompt you. So if you need uh, help. Right. So for me, and it's a tough one, and it kind of follows on the conversation about politics or, or you know, sensitive topics. You need to belong and yet be different. Mm. And, and that... That, that basically suggests that it's it's okay to not have everybody belong. So, because what you're looking for is who's your tribe, 
as Seth Godin might say. And, and you need to be able to put a perimeter around that tribe somehow. I'm not saying it should be, uh, you know, a tight perimeter. In other words, it can be porous, but you need to know with whom you belong. What is your tribe? Who is your tribe? And, um, you belong to them. And yet when you're in there, then you need to feel that you are unique and different and contributing personally. So that, that's the, the, the first challenge. And it's true at the individual level and at a brand level. The second one is you need to understand your past, uh, yet live for the future. And, and there my sadness is the, uh, the way we've reviewed uh, history. And I think in, in, in general, it's important to know your past. And, and if you don't know your past, it's very hard to really understand what your roots are. And as such, it becomes difficult to understand who you are as an individual. So once I, 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 I borrow this from a French friend of mine who said, you need to have a foot in the past, a foot in the future to be present. Mm. And, and that's, that's the second paradox. Looking at my book now, to, right? The third one is, I'm cheating. That's reconcile, right. reconcile the quest for order in the presence of chaos. And and the this the idea of chaos is a beautiful one. It, it, it's really useful, and obviously it exists in quantum mechanics, but actually it exists in all of our days, and it generally comes up as unexpected events. So as much as we're trying to plan and prepare, we're, we go to schools to learn how to do that. We need to be able to rumble with the failure and unexpected events. And a small example of how that works practically, I, when I was running Redken or Canada, I made sure that 50% of my day was free of meetings. People who run from meetings to meetings, like you were saying before, just, you know, they don't have time to think. They're just doing all this time and, and they don't actually, you can't, there's no space for, for strategic work. And specifically, there's no opportunity for handling the unexpected, the, the, the accidents, the shit that happens, uh, as well as allowing for just strategic time. So somehow knowing that we want to put plan and order in, in place but embracing chaos and the unexpected, including failures. And the fourth is we seek truth, but gravitate towards stories. And so the problem, of course, there is that a truth is in somehow the, the eye of the beholder. Uh, honesty is a more interesting thought at some level because it, it suggests that you're presenting to somebody else. And in any event, as words come out of my mouth, they are being structured by neurons that come from my experience. And in the end of the day, being a leader is also telling the story, driving the narrative. And sometimes that's a, a retelling of history at some level. Uh, but you need to be comfortable telling the story, omitting some facts, driving a narrative, because it's a messy world. And, you know, the company I was running, Redken, was around for 40 years when I took them on. And so there's lots of things in the history but I can't tell everything. What is the narrative? What is the story that I want to take? Because that is what embarks people along the way. So it's not about being false, but it's about finding the truth that you want to tell. And you say it over and over again, because that's how people subscribe to you and get emotionally engaged. There you go. Oh, that's great. I love that. So 
fitting in yet being unique, knowing the past but planning for the future, seeking order amid chaos, and looking for the truth but trending towards stories. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful dichotomy there. <laughs> um, and, and look, through those uh, four paradoxes, I suppose, or is that paradise? I don't know. If that, <laughs> through those four paradoxes, uh, I would imagine that is part of our journey to uh, finding our authentic selves, whether it's our authentic self as an individual or uh, our authenticity within uh, the brand or the company that we represent. Mm. It's absolutely the truth. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a messy world. And, and we're complex human beings and we, we tend to make things far more complicated as our emotions are there as a first filter with everything. And we all bring our baggage. And the paradoxes are uncomfortable because, you know, how can I be this and how can I be that? Like Sumaya was saying, well, I have my authentic self, but I need to listen and be attentive and and let's say, uh, worried about the new environment I'm working in. Am, am I going to fit in? And, and this, anyway, the, 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 troy, the, tra- the truth is, for example, uh, I'm not always 100% me. And that's okay. Because if we start doing a sort of a tyrannical approach to authenticity and, and try to hold ourselves up to a standard we can't live with long term, well, it's, that's a short road to burnout. So you, you, you have to accept, just like in chaos, the imperfections. You, 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 the the real, real knowledge of you is when you know what you're good at, but you also recognize your weaknesses and even the dark matter, the darker side that you have. doesn't mean you expose it because I think radical transparency is not a good idea. First of all, are you being radically transparent 100% about who you are? No, because you will never have 100% knowledge of who you are. And second of all, the, you, there's, the, I like to say that there's mystery, there's beauty in mystery. And so somehow uh, you don't need to be radically, tyrannically transparent. Mm. But as long as you're aware of you, who you are and your weaknesses and your darker side, you're not hiding from them, don't become a chip on the shoulder, then you're more solid in your shoes. This is a French term I've been saying a few times. You know, I like that. You're comfortable in your shoes. Then you're aware of them and these weaknesses and foibles won't come out as a screaming thing, a fit, tissy fit, you know, at work because, well, you don't need to do it. You're just aware. Right. You know, as you were speaking there, Mentor, I was reminded of uh, the sage wisdom of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers from uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, who said, Authenticity isn't about being someone else. It's about being the best version of yourself. And I've seen a number of leaders who have tried to take on the mantra of another leader. You, and you can see them almost impersonating this other leader. And you can tell it's not working because they're not being themselves. They're trying to be uh, their version of what they perceive someone else to be. And it just doesn't come off as uh, as genuine and as, as authentic. It actually works against them in that case. Like wearing a black turtleneck shirt and blue jeans. <laughs> and we're going to bring Gary to 
uh, the stage. Gary, welcome to Timeless Leadership. How are you doing, gentlemen? Uh, fascinating discussion. Um, Minta, I was reading your background, and it was interesting, you know, in Washington and how you researched your grandfather and all of that, and, you know, talking about leadership reminded me of a Harvard business case study I read around wearing your father's jacket. And, you know, I, I think to be a true leader, you have to, as you say, step into your own suit, um, be in your own shoes and be your own man or woman. And I think in the early days, it's very hard for people to sort of get out of the coding that their parents have given them. And, you know, I, for one, found in my banking career that in man, my first few management jobs, I kind of was wearing my dad's jacket. And when I really started to fly, it was when I actually took that off and wore my own. So I thought I would give you that as something mm. to remember. Well, let me tell you how that resonates with me, Gary. So I, um, I, I rebelled against my father. I didn't want to be what he was or what he was doing. So that was marketing. And uh, I didn't want to be married to a French woman as he was. Uh, oh, shoot. Isn't that what all of us want? Not what yeah. our fathers have. Yeah. So how did I end up in marketing married to a French woman? Huh. That's interesting. But um, let me tell you. So the, the story that I researched was about my grandfather and what was really instrumental about that. It was, I did that from 1991. I mean, really, it's still to today, but from 1991 to 2001, for 10 years, I, I got a chance to interview 130 veterans of the Second World War who had known my grandfather after whom I was named. He was killed January 9th, 1945. So I, I'm old, but not that old. And I didn't know him. But what I did do was reconstitute uh, his life. And, and in talking to those veterans, I, I felt like I was puny. I felt like I was not measuring up. Hmm. And so it was a great sock-raising moment or whatever the expression is where I had to shape up because – I felt myself whinging about all sorts of things. And I, I remember feeling selfish about, you know, oh my gosh, I, that's, I need to work on this. This is so unimportant. And, and then when I was looking at the uh, second airplane and it crashed into the South Tower and in, in front of my eyes, um, and I had several friends who were killed and, and I was reflecting, I just remember there, there was my, first of all, I had my office was filled with about 50 or 60 people because I had this corner office that overlooked the towers and, and I was the only, one of the only offices that had that and everybody crowded in and then everybody left and there was this sort of uh, very worrisome silence. But anyway, I was looking at it and I was thinking, how, what would my grandfather have thought? And then it struck me that he, on the morning of December 8, 1941, so this is after the timeline, in after Pearl Harbor, uh, he, he was captain of the USS Napa, a Navy, U.S. Navy ship, and um, he was woken up at, at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, by the cook who told me the story, and, and he said, Sir, uh, Captain, we, we've, um, we've been attacked, war has been declared. 
And and then he, he went back into the logbook, which was typed usually by the ensign. And he wrote by hand, 0340 hours. Hostilities with the Japanese Empire have started. War has been declared. And I, 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 so I was trying to learn from and think through what a man with those solid values would have been thinking as he ran his ship and all his, the, you know, the people who reported into him. So he was the USS Napa in Philippines at the beginning of war. And there I was running Redken with a lot of employees, uh, which was representing New York. And I, I really, lent into that. I maybe somehow donned some of his thoughts and certainly of his uh, fellow soldiers who had been with him, many of whom were prisoners of war, the Japanese, and for three and a half years, basically all lost 50% of their weight, 42% of them were killed. And, and, And think that, that was difficult. Let's put things into perspective, what's really difficult. Anyway, so that perspective taking, let's say I donned that coat that you were talking about, Gary, that's what I did. And I think I did it um, in an effort to be a better version of me. It's fascinating because that's the opposite of what the Harvard one was. And in a way, you know, our parents do coat us when we're kids and grandparents and whatever. But in the Harvard one, they were basically saying that until you truly mature as a leader, you sort of do what you've been coded to do. And then you step out of that jacket to be yourself, which I thought was fascinating. But what I'd love, and I don't know if Scott knows this and if the other people do, you have any desire to talk about the appendix to that story, the ring? Because hmm. that, that's awesome. That's that's a, a, a great segue, Gary, and I think uh, it's a great thing for us to end on because it's such a, a, a wonderful and personal it's story yeah. uh, for, yeah. for Mentor. So, Mentor, what do you say? What, what about you, uh, the, the last ring? Thank you, Gary. Uh, what, what about uh, this uh, the, the book and documentary uh, that you wrote, The Lost Ring? Yeah, so um, interestingly, I, uh, the narrative that Minter has now done, because I wrote that book and filmed the film in 2016. And, and so, um, you could sort of say, well, what on earth does doing a story about World War II have to do with authenticity or business books as I've written since? Well, in, in point of fact, it really was a, a kind of a crystallization of, of who I felt I was and espousing the three values that I truly believe in. And, and then manifesting those things. So it was part of that narrative. So The Last Ring Home is a, uh, a story about the story of objects and the value that we attribute to objects, the story of the ring, which was his Annapolis Naval Academy ring. And he graduated in 1932. And, of course, I often speak to international audiences that don't really understand the value of these signet rings, but specifically for the military academies, West Point, uh, the Air Force, and the Annapolis Naval Academy. These rings are extremely valuable, such that uh, for many of the prisoners who had a ring, they would rather have kept that than get a last bowl of rice or glass of water despite starvation. And in my grandfather's case, he, after being captured, he managed to keep the ring, which wasn't always easy. 
because they would sometimes cut off ring, fingers just to take rings. And uh, he managed to keep it. And then he was uh, mortally wounded uh, January, 8, January 9, 1945, uh, on board a unmarked passenger ship, which had at the time 1,300 prisoners on it. And he, uh, as he was lay dying and he was coddled by a friend, he said, listen, take this ring, give it to my wife and tell her that I loved her. Wow. He then expires in horrible circumstances. And the man actually survives. And the magic of that is that there are only 300 of the initial 1,619 men that actually survived the war. And he was one of those. So he was able to come home. And, and he found my grandmother in 1946 in California. She was a, uh, a retired actress and had, was the mother of two people now. And he told her about his last moments and, and the friendship that he'd had with him in the prison camps. And he said, oh, unfortunately, uh, he gave me a ring, but I lost it in the chaos. Oh, no. And uh, it was tragic at so many levels, but he ends up, as he's leaving, my grandmother just did not accept ever the death. She couldn't get over the death of her loved, beloved uh, husband and uh, as he's leaving he, he sees my father who in 1946 was eight years old and he said son I uh, wish I could have brought the ring but here's my watch so he took off his own wristwatch and he gave it to my father then that's 1946 my grandmother gets remarried tries to live another life and then um, we have to fast forward now to 1962 May of 1962 and a Korean laborer is digging uh, in an excavation site, and he finds some gold. This is outside of Incheon, where the current airport is in, in, uh, in Korea, South Korea. And the, the, uh, d d the guy finds this gold ring, and he says, ah, oh, cool, I'm going to borrow this as booty. And he puts it in his pocket, but as he's leaving the compound, he sees that they're being searched because you weren't allowed to take anything from the excavation site. So he said to a friend, hey, buddy, listen, I'm in Korean, of course. I, I found this gold. Uh, I need to get you make a distraction for me so they don't search me. What do you got? Shows him the ring. He says, oh, what are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to burn it down. Okay. So they get through, and the guy who found the ring goes to burn down the ring. But the other man happens to have a second job. And his name is Yi So-young. And Yi So-young's second job is to be a driver. And his boss happened to be an American who um, was actually a United States admiral in charge of the Allied Pacific Fleet. And so a big deal. And um, he goes to report to the Admiral Pressey and he said, sir, reporting for duty. Um, and at some point he says, well, sir, funny thing happened today at work my other job, a friend of mine found a ring that looks remarkably like yours. Well, what do you mean? Yeah, well, he found it and he was going to go burn it down. Where? I don't know, sir. In Inchon. So Inchon in May of 1962, there are 350,000 people that live in this. This is not a, you know, a village. It's not a metropolis either, but it's, you know, you don't find somebody like that just because you want to. There weren't cell phones and GPS systems and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, they jump in the Jeep, 
and they drive around Incheon and miraculously they find the initial Korean who had found the ring and they jump on him and where's the ring? Ah, it's too late. I've already sold it. Where? Well, uh, in the pawn shop up there, they run, get back in the Jeep, go to the pawn shop and they jump in the small sort of dusty, you can imagine sort of lots of smells and, and very old and vintage place. Anyway, um, the admiral says, where's the ring? Through the translator of the driver. And the guy who's at the pawn shop says, well, it's too late. It's already in the fire. I don't care. Get out the ring from the fire. I'll pay you $36. So he gets the ring out of the fire. It's already one third melted down. And he pays for the ring immediately because he recognized it as an Annapolis ring because he was also a graduate of Annapolis. Then what happens with these rings is they have on the outside the year, and the year said 32. He says, oh, my gosh, that's my year. Then he looked inside, and what they would do is they would engrave their names on the inside of the ring. And on the inside of the ring, he could clearly see dial. At that point, he says, oh, my God, my best friend. Wow. Pressy had played with my grandfather, on the same line, lacrosse, All-American, from 1929 to 1832, and was best man at his wedding in 1934. Can you imagine? He finds this ring, then he sends it back to my grandmother through my father, and uh, at that point, my grandmother um, kills herself. My father recuperates the ring, marries, moves to Belgium, moves to France. And they just had been doing some repainting of the home outside of Paris in Marie-Marie. And they had a boozy 1960s-style dinner party. And uh, the following morning when they went down, they hadn't cleaned up after the party, they went down uh, and my mother noticed that the frame in which the return ring had been uh, beautifully installed was missing. So, fact is that the the ring is no longer in my possession, our possession. Ah. So, if there's a one small fanciful wish I have is to find the ring one more time hmm. before my father passes. Wow, that that is truly an amazing story, mentor. I mean the I mean what are the odds of those things having happened and I mean it it sounds like even though you're a few generations removed it sounds like it was a difficult story to tell being as mm. emotionally connected uh to it as you are I I mean you know I can't help but first of all storytelling right Scott uh being genuine in your storytelling then let the emotions be yeah don't be afraid to hide from them, uh, you, but you have to be effective. So if I just started bawling, that's not really useful for the story. <laughs> but wow. the truth is, as I say the story, I'm thinking about Pressy. Because when, for example, Pressy, when he got home that evening after collecting the ring, he went back and uh, two of his daughters were still living with him and his wife. And he said, this is a signal to, to me uh, that I need to reconnect with my family. Mm. 
and the ring became so important for them. So uh, this story was told to me by his youngest daughter, who was Daddy's little girl, and and uh, she told me the story. You know, fifty years on, crying. I found my father again. He lived for five more years, five more glorious years, in in large part thanks to that ring. Mm. So for me, this is an object with sentimental value, but it's not just my story. What I've enjoyed when I have my film on, on PBS or, or people see it is what stories it begets in other people. And I've loved finding out other people's stories because it turns out we pretty much all have skeletons in the closet and especially when it comes to the second world war stories and and i think what we need to remember are how lucky we are to be living today what an amazing sacrifice those folks gave and some of those core values which might sound reactionary or conservative but some of their core values that we could do with having more of today, including having a backbone and courage and honor and love in the case of my grandmother are the values that I continue to want to promote. Yeah. And and it's obviously in direct contrast to um, what we experience every day in terms of uh, technology and VR and artificial (laughs) intelligence and all these, these, you know, hard data driven uh, technology driven things when, you know, we're, we're still human beings at, at the core of this, and we still have mm-hmm. these values that we ought to express. Um, you know, it, and, and to just kind of put a, to come full circle on this, you mentioned earlier in our conversation about needing some kind of shock, needing mm-hmm. some kind of near-death experience to help us take stock as to what's the most important in our lives. And it sounds like mm-hmm. Pressy. Uh, discovered that through the shock of having discovered his uh, long-lost best friend's ring. And uh, it just mm. proves your point. 100%. So, well, we, we uh, had a wonderful time here speaking with Minter Dial, author of You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. You can find it wherever books are sold. And you can find more out about Minter Dial at MinterDial.com. Minter, thanks so much for being on Timeless Leadership. It's been my timeless pleasure, Scott. (laughs) Every one of us has a set of values that we believe in. And it shouldn't be too difficult to extend those values to the work that we do. Life is too short to pretend to be something you're not. Being your authentic self is the greatest gift you can give your team. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader.